Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Hey, everybody. We are really excited to introduce our guest for today um, that we had a fantastic conversation with. So upcoming, you are going to hear us speak to Jesse Daniels. Um, Jesse is a full professor of sociology at Hunter College, and she's an internationally recognized expert on internet manifestations of racism. She has presented to the United Nations. She has several published works, including the book White Lies, which explored far-right extremist groups' printed newsletters, and then followed that with a second book called Cyber Racism. Um, she has spent a lot of time with the extreme alt-right, yes. and recently um, just published a book kind of addressing us, the non-alt-right <laughs> white ladies <laughs> that we have talked about in previous episodes and reading and that Katie and I both read and is fantastic. It was published in October of last year. It called Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Can Help Dismantle It. So we get to spend like the next hour kind of Going through, like, very surfacey because we could talk to her for hours and hours oh, and hours so much. <laughs> about yeah. what was in this book, but kind of focusing on white feminism, the many problems with white feminism. And what I loved is just kind of being able to discuss the things that we can really concretely do in our own lives to dismantle all of these problems that we have caused. Yeah, I, I think really, truly, every single one. Every single person who listens to our podcast should get this book. I, I say that about all the books that we've covered, and it's yeah. absolutely true for this. And it feels in some way like a spinoff of everything we've been doing because there are a lot of pieces of history that listeners will recognize um, that we've already talked about, but a lot of things we haven't gotten to yet and that I was just constantly circling like, ooh, Mandy's petty detective needs to get on the case <laughs> for that. Um, I mean, things like the wellness industry and yoga and Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop and transracial adoptions and cultural appropriation and um, and and the far right. I think um, that's actually something I'd love to have Jesse back to talk about the women, white women in those like neo-fascist groups and how you yeah. spend your days researching that without just not <laughs> losing it completely. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I her work is great. Our conversation was great. I could have talked to her for hours and hours. And I just, I, I think there's going to be a lot to really push listeners to be as critically self-reflective as we can and not yeah. shy away from that, you know? Yep. Yeah. So take a listen. If you have not bought the book, listen and then go buy it and read it. Do um, invest in her work and hopefully we will get to have her back to discuss more. Cause at the end, you'll definitely be saying, but what about this? Wait, hold on, answer another question. <laughs> oh, especially if you read the book there. I mean, truly I'm flipping through now and I'm like, Oh, there's a start part. I wanted to talk to her about that. We didn't get to talk about. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I'm so grateful for this work and, and someone, another white woman that wants to just like out our shit telling ourselves, you know, like we know this is yeah. happening and it cannot continue. So yeah. 
Great. Great. Enjoy. Enjoy, everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. It's one of our favorite episodes. I'm Mandy. (gasps) I'm Katie. I'm so excited. This is just great. We have with us a very special guest today whose book we are so grateful for. And for anyone who is new to listening, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a podcast. We are two white ladies ourselves, nice white ladies ourselves. Hopefully not that nice, honestly, because fuck nice. Um, But we... In this podcast, our purpose is to tell our dirty laundry, to look into the history of white women's complicity with white supremacy, how that intersects with ableism, cisgenderism, uh, classism, like all the isms, Christian bullshit. Like we want to look at all of it and hold ourselves accountable to how this reproduces in our own lives, the choices that we make and how we can learn from these histories and current events. So if you're new Welcome. If you have been listening forever, you know the drill and you should be super excited for today's episode. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. So today we are talking to Jessie Daniels and she is the author of Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Can Help Dismantle It. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. I'm so thrilled to be here. (laughs) Yes, we wanted to know, I mean, when Katie and I started this podcast, it was kind of based on our anger at nice white ladies, (laughs) I think. And so when we saw the title of your book, and it just came out last, uh, end of last year, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, October of 21. Yeah, we saw that and we're like, oh my gosh, this woman is like, just on our exact same wavelength. This is (laughs) where we're going. So tell us, I wanted to start by asking you just... Where did this idea come from? Like, what made you decide to write this book with this title? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, lots of reasons going back, uh, actually, a couple of decades. I've been doing work on white supremacy for 25, 30 years, which is kind of astonishing for me to say <laughs> out loud, but that's just what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've been, I've been thinking about these issues for a long time, and um you know, there was a kind of confluence of events that I just thought this is the right time for this book. And, um, and part of those, I mean, it wasn't exactly inspired by, by these events, but it was about, um, at the same time that I, uh, got the contract with the, for the book was, uh, in spring of 2020 when there's a mm. lot of other stuff going on in the world. Uh, but one of the, the things that stays with me from that spring was, uh, in late May, you know, um, the day in late May when we all watched um, George Floyd being murdered by that cop in uh, Minnesota was the same day that just a few blocks from where I live here in New York City, a white woman was walking her dog off leash in Central mm-hmm. Park and uh, an African-American gentleman asked her nicely to put the dog on a leash. And she, in one of the most chilling things I've ever heard actually on the, you can hear it on the tape. When she calls 911, she throws her voice up an octave and says, there's an African-American man threatening me. And, and, you know, what she was doing in that, um, you know, in that kind of heightened femininity um, that she was performing there, but she was trying to summon the police to do to that gentleman in the park, what had just happened that same day to George Floyd. And, and that, confluence, that confluence of events just, you know, uh, made me angry, made me want to do something. And, and in part, this book is a, is a result of 
that kind of thing I saw happening. So it happened on the same day, like May of 2020, but those two things had kind of been happening all along. And I just thought somebody needs to put a pin in this and draw a direct arrow and say, you know what, you, you white women who are picking up the phone and calling 911 mm-hmm. on people, do you know what happens at the end of that? Is that your intention? Mm-hmm. Because if it is, we need to have another discussion. And if you right. haven't thought about so it, a, that's right, a, exactly. a discussion. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, something we've been learning as we've been going through all of this, that was it was really exciting to to see connections being made to a lot of the histories that we've learned about on this podcast, like mm-hmm. suffrage and white women's mm-hmm. shitty mm-hmm. suffrage activism. And mm-hmm. um, Stephanie Jones Rogers is someone we interviewed in her book on slavery mm-hmm. and white women is so freaking awesome and just really being able to to make those connections and looking at your past work on like far right like stormfront mm-hmm. yeah. like creepy right. scary right. obvious bad mm-hmm. something right. that Mandy and I keep saying is it's the easiest targets have actually been like the least instructive because they're so right. obviously heinous but right. the right. it's the white women who think they're liberal, like the women fighting for suffrage or, uh, you know, that that's actually where a lot of super scary shit happens and where I think we implicate ourselves, you know, our, our personal politics are progressive and more on the left. And um, that's actually something I'm going to see if I can find this exact quote, because you talked about how, if we don't root feminism, Oh, here, here's the quote that, that the women that you were looking at who were involved in Stormfront thought of themselves as feminists. And so you said, yeah. look, their yeah. embrace of feminism says something troubling about white liberal feminism. Without an explicit challenge to racism, this kind of feminism gets weaponized as a way to justify racist violence to protect the ladies. And so I, I'm wondering if you feel that, how how for us it's like way, um, I, don't, I don't know the even the right adjective, like even just important to interrogate white feminism. Mm-hmm. As as much as it is to look at like white like Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, it's really yeah, easy yeah. to look at them. Can you just talk a little bit about your instinct to look to just have your gaze right. expand past far right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the one of the insights from that um, experience of hanging out at Storefront, which at the oh, time was the largest white supremacist portal, you know, and they had the thing the one of the places I hung out there online was they had this thing called the ladies forum, you know, which was for the white lady uh, supremacists. Um, and I had been looking at the, um, at them in printed publications before that. And so this was kind of, you know, in a kind of traditional white feminist way, it was kind of an advance, but I was like, what, <laughs> what is, what is the advance here? You know? So there are white women contributing to white supremacist uh, logic. It just doesn't. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that for white feminists, it's really important for us to to constantly be interrogating our own racial position because if we don't, we it is inevitable that we end up at the same place as the ladies only forum at Stormfront. And I know that sounds outrageous, but you see it happen in real time over and over and over again. You know, so I mean, I think about the kinds of harm that we do that we don't quite uh, recognize. So I think about our performative activism, right, mm-hmm. as one of the places that I sort of uh, try to push white feminists to reconsider what we're doing in the world. So a lot of uh, people I know, a lot of close friends went to the March on Washington, the Women's March of January of 2017. And 
And there was a big, you know, a lot of people were knitting their own caps. And then there was a whole thing around the pink pussy hats and all that. Mm-hmm. And, and what ended up happening is it ended up being this kind of display of the worst parts of white feminism, in my view, because yes, there were hundreds of thousands of people marching on Washington and you could say, well, that in and of itself is a good thing. But, but there were people there, there were white women there with signs that said, if Hillary had won, we would be at brunch now. You know, and it's like, <laughs> know we can, we, you know, we can see you, right? <laughs> like what, and, I mean, and more than that, I mean, the thing that bothered me so much about that march was that, you know, it was so centered in this kind of what I call a gender only feminism, you know, that, that we're only talking about gender and that race is, is something over there. It's something for other people to care about, but not us. We care about gender because that's what's affecting us. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really what I'm talking about with this, with white feminism to me, because it's gender only. We're just going to center gender. And that leads us down a really, uh, <laughs> really fucked up path um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways. And, and part of the fucked upness of the gender only path is that it keeps us centering white women. Um, and, and by that, I mean, talking only to white women, only about gender, mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm talking about white women, but I'm talking about white women's racial position, right? Which mm-hmm. is a different project, right? It's a different Mm -hmm. thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and when we stay focused on gender, the other thing it does is it, the gender only thing is rooted in a kind of binary notion of gender, Mm -hmm. right? It it really, when you push it just a little bit, you see that just underneath that is this this very antiquated kind of men are from Mars and women are from (laughs) Venus and we live on separate planets. You know, I mean, we can laugh about that, but that, but that shit's floating in the New York times Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Like, like around the, I don't know if you saw this photo and I need to grab it before it goes away, but there's this great photograph in the New York times around the, you know, the disparity around housework Mm -hmm. and domestic labor and childcare uh, in the New York times during the pandemic. And they, it's this great photo of some in somebody's house and they've got way more space than I do, but they, you can see down this line, it's sort of a wall that divides the, the bathroom where the mom is in with a toddler helping with the potty training. And then the guy, the husband and the father is off in the office, just like working. And it's just like, what's wrong with this picture? Mm-hmm. And, and all the conversations about white women, sort of doing a, a greater share of, you know, childcare and housework is also centered in this gender only conversation that that doesn't look at sort of the, the wider distribution of of all that labor. And it just talks about gender in a very narrow way that, you know, that is also rooted in whiteness. So this notion that white women should only be the ones responsible in a household with a white father and white children should be the only one or the primary one responsible for childcare and housework is rooted in this very specific idea about gender and gender relations 
that's really connected to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. There's a, a wonderful book I, I uh, cite in mine and that I want to shout out because it's so good. It's called The Tragedy of Heterosexuality mm-hmm. by a scholar named Jane Ward. And oh, yeah. she really does this great thing of connecting this early, what she calls marriage repair industry, mm-hmm. which I love that phrase, mm-hmm. <laughs> marriage repair industry with the eugenics movement. Mm-hmm. And, and she documents historically like how those are just absolutely inter- Twine. So the notion of, you know, building a strong white race depended on the subjugation of white women, but it also depended on this kind of binary notion of this is what men do and this is what women do. And part of what Jane Ward points out, you know, is that there was this, there's this antagonism in heterosexuality, which she calls the, the slap and the kiss. It's like, oh, I hate you. I love you. I hate you. I love you. <laughs> and part of that, part of that is in the marriage repair industry, you know, I mean, it, it, which continues to this day and now has taken on this global aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Where there are men from, you know, say South Asia who are going to marriage repair. Um, what do they call them? dating workshops. Mm-hmm. And these happen all, all over Western Europe. They happen in England. They happen here in the United States. But the idea is you too, sir, could date a hot white blonde. They don't say white. They say a hot blonde. Mm-hmm. White is implied. <laughs> yeah. But we're, we're going we're gonna to workshop you to asking the hot blonde out for a date. Wow. Right. And, and in that is this kind of notion that women are over here and men are over here. Right. And it reinforces this binary thinking, right. That men and women are so different. And along with that gender only feminism is this kind of, kind of idea of, this is going to be an academic, academic term, but this idea of essentialism, that there's something inherent in women that's Mm -hmm. more loving, more peaceful, more nurturing, but that only applies to white women. Mm -hmm. Like black women don't get those inherent you know, assumptions about their goodness and their innocence, right? Right. That's about white women, Mm -hmm. you know? And then if you stick, if you stay in that binary, right? Men are on Mars, women are on Venus. And you, and you buy into that essentialism that there's something inherent in men and women. Then the next step Mm -hmm. is the TERFs, right? Mm -hmm. Have you heard this term? Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. trans exclusionary radical feminists. This is much bigger in England right now than it is in the US. And you can look at some of JK Rowling's Mm -hmm. tweets to catch up on that if you like, and all the people replying back to her. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, but it's a horrible kind of ideology that is, is at its core about the destruction of trans people, Yes, you know, and, and, but it's rooted. I mean, the thing that there's a, a, wonderful scholar in England by the name of Alison Phipps, who you should also talk to. Um, and she's um, she's done a deep dive on this, and she really connects this turf ideology to this binary essentialist notion of gender. There's, um, We were just talking to Pop for this interview, and there's a scholar in Canada who's um, just brilliant and a trans man who does a lot of work in early childhood elementary education who's been tweeting a lot with the news out of Texas um with mm-hmm. regards to mm-hmm. you know considering helping trans children transition to be child abuse um and yeah. so yeah. he posted just a couple days ago it may seem that the anti-CRT anti-trans anti-public ed fights in the US are disconnected from the atrocities unfolding in Ukraine but as historical evidence demonstrates racism and queer trans oppression are central to the construction of authoritarian regimes and that just tracks so well with everything you just said like yeah. this idea of a nuclear family is super heterosexist right. it's super racist like there's so much mm-hmm. going 
on there. It's capitalist, like all of these mm-hmm. ways that these yeah. intersections happen. And something I so appreciated about your book is how you hold all of that together in a way that's yeah. still super accessible and nice. like comes to life. Maybe I know that yeah. was struck you too, that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. I mean, there were so, so many parts that we could just all talk for ever and ever about all of those. But I was, <laughs> I did write that specifically down. Like you talked about like how a lot of the damage that white women have done, that white people have done in general is through the defense of this nuclear idea mm-hmm. of family. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that investigating that and looking more closely into mm-hmm. that and how we define relationships and kinship and how mm-hmm. we're connected to mm-hmm. other people um, has been used for so long as a way of, continuing white supremacy, but really could be so much broader than that. And that's what I think I appreciated about, you know, the discussion about the binary nature of the way that we discuss gender. It's all such a narrowing way to Mm -hmm. investigate these problems. And it leaves Mm -hmm. out so much. It leaves out Mm -hmm. so many problems. Mm -hmm. And then it leaves out Mm -hmm. so many solutions that we don't even Mm -hmm. think about because we're just narrowed Mm -hmm. down on this one aspect of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember... Like growing up, I've always been on the much more liberal progressive side and was just a, would have considered myself a raging feminist in my junior <laughs> high years, super angry at all sorts of things. Who knows what I had a right to I be knew her in junior high, and this is very oh, true. Yeah. We've been friends since so we cool. were 12. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. It's so <laughs> true. So great. But one of the things I was angry about was women who did not consider themselves to be feminists because mm-hmm. I thought, mm-hmm. how could anyone who's a woman mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. want mm-hmm. to be on the side of women? Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, those women that I'm talking about, I still have problems mm-hmm. with. But as <laughs> I learned more about feminism, mm-hmm. I I stopped a bit and I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> there's there's the problem. There may be something to that. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. necessarily what those women were thinking, because theirs were right, more right, of right, a right. you know normative right. patriarchal kind of rejection right. of it. But on the other side, there are a lot of damn good reasons to reject feminism the way yeah. that it has been played out so right, far. Right. But you talk about that right. in the book in one part when somebody asks you in a presentation you were giving if you identified mm-hmm. as a white feminist oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and kind of yeah. your own thought process about that. And tell us right. about that kind of idea. Yeah. yeah, that was so great. You know, it's a lot of times when I, I give these presentations or talks or whatever, um, it's really in the Q&A where you get, you get sort <laughs> of the nugget of things. Um, and this was especially true in this case, because it was a group of young, uh, young women and femme identified uh, young people, you know, in their, in their teens. And, uh, and one of them said, you know, I had done this whole long critique of white feminism, sort of at this, you know, uh, sort of high school level. And, and then this, this young black woman asked me, she said, well, do you identify as a white feminist? It was like, excellent fucking question. <laughs> um, uh, give me a minute, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I actually, I couldn't answer in the moment, but so I, in a way the book is sort of a, a mm. response back to her mm. uh, uh, many years later. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually identify as a white feminist. And there are a lot of times when I have, I have pushed away from feminism as mm. not like my, 
you know, not my intellectual or my spiritual home. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like those are not the people I'm hanging out with. And, and you know, and professionally, I've, I've left organizations mm-hmm. that were mostly white feminists because I was like, this is just a mean girls club. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't need to be in here. Um, and, you know, and this is not about liberation, ultimately. You know, this is just about reproducing these hierarchies and doing to each other what's been done to us, you know. Um, so so through conversation, you know, and with talking with other people, and this is really my um, uh, friend Flavia in the Netherlands, we were having this conversation about Hillary, you know, going to be elected. And I was just like, this is bad news, man. I mean, all the white feminists are applauding, but I think it's going to be bad if she gets elected in, in the way that it's going to re-entrench white feminism. Mm didn't work out that way. It, got, it, was, it was terrible in another direction. But, um, <laughs> but in that conversation, you know, I, I reflected on, you know, Flavia's great quote, which is my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, I just think that's where I end up on this. It's like, I'm not, I'm not a white feminist. And if you call me one, I might, you know, I might have to take my earrings off you know, <laughs> and, and meet you out in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't identify as a white feminist. And I, and I think in, as I think more about it, you know, even since the book came out, it's really about not investing in the whiteness part mm-hmm. of white feminism. And that, that for me is, is part of what the move that I've done and what I'm trying to invite other nice white ladies to do as well is to, is really to divest from whiteness. Um, and, and for me, that di- divestiture from whiteness was, was actually a little easier because of a, because of a crazy lie that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So my father, very much a racist and a segregationist, he grew up in the Jim Crow era. Um, but he believed himself, God bless him, uh, to be a Cherokee. Mm-hmm. He was not. Uh, but he raised me with the idea that I too was, uh, of the Cherokee tribe. Um, and, and when I was growing up as a little kid, he told me the story of the trail of tears, you know, the forced march by president Jackson of a, of the indigenous Cherokee from Georgia to Oklahoma to reservation. And he told that story kind of like choked up as if our, you know, ancestors had been on it, you know? And so, so part of that, even though that was a, a, a silly lie that I grew up with, what it meant was that I didn't grow up identifying as white, Mm -hmm. you know, like when I was, uh, we'd be driving the car as me my mother and father and, um, you know, Cher would come on singing half breed. My mother would turn up, turn up the sound and go, this is for you, honey. (laughs) You know, so it was, it was deep, the belief in this, Mm -hmm. but, but that gave me a kind of, uh, outsider status to whiteness that I think has sort of helped me to divest from whiteness. And, and just going back to the previous conversation about the gender only feminism and how it ties into the nuclear family and all that, I also, I also came out as queer, certainly not something that my parents had hoped for me. Um, but, but coming out as queer when I came out, um, you know, it was late when I came out, I was like 28 and that was in the late eighties, early, uh, early nineties. Um, and at the time, you know, it was just in this moment before all the, you know, like, like no one talked about same sex marriage or anything like that. And it was also a it was also before kind of IVF really took off. So the mm-hmm. reproductive mm-hmm. technology. And so, so to be queer as a woman mm-hmm. meant 
really like if you it, really what Audre Lorde meant when she when she was when she declared herself a lesbian. It really meant rejecting the nuclear family, including our families of origin. You know, so I actually recently taught um, Zami a new spelling of my name by Audre Lorde, and she, you know, she left home. She was about seventeen or eighteen. I left home when I was seventeen, mm-hmm. and she and she never you know, reconnects with her family of origin. And my students are all like, where's the scene where she goes back home and her family Mm. goes, we love you anyway. It was like, oh, honey, that's not how we did (laughs) back then. You know, like we left and that was it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, so there's a way in which queerness also helped me. It was a liberation for me. It Mm. liberated me from uh, the constraints of heteronormativity of the nuclear family and, and, and my own family of origin was just like, nope, we are, you know, as Audrey and Rich says, we're out here, uh, where the maps are out of date, mm-hmm. you know, we are just, we are beyond what you all have imagined. And, and really what I'm hoping that the book does is sort of, sort of reinvigorate some of that early radical lesbian feminist imagination of mm-hmm. kinship in other ways. You know, who, who are the people that we love? Who are the people that we really care about? It may be that the people that you love and care about are biologically related to you, but but what a small circle mm-hmm. to just have the people that you love and care about be people that you have a biological connection with. That that just seems so limiting. Well, and I think that when you talk about kinship networks as one of your pieces of advice for disinvesting mm-hmm. in whiteness at the end of the book, which I love that last chapter I thought was so helpful. Um, I think that's something else that's just a constant drumbeat message we've been hearing from everyone we've talked to is, is – who are you obligated to? Who are you concerned right. about? Who's connect? What connections are you able to see right, being right. made? And your critique of like white moms and who they feel obligated to is like their children, full stop. Yeah. And you know that yeah. I think is just so pernicious. And it connects back even to this brunch issue. Like if what your goal yep. is is to right. be comfortable and like that's what right. you're willing to put yourself on the line for or go to a march for is to return to brunch or for your kids to be protected and then you're done and then you're out of whatever movement you were a part of. That's it. it. You got yours. You got yours. You're moving on. Then I I, like that part of it. I just, it is so there's the messaging is so powerful and strong, both from within social networks and like in the media, you know, to, to reject that. And I wonder the other piece, I mean, there's so much we loved about your book, but your short fucking list of white women (laughs) that are worth like anything. Um, we've been, we have Kate Schatz come on. She wrote, um, rad women A to Z and she does a lot of work Mm. around anti-racist work. And Mm -hmm. so we've, she's like, well, I'll come on every once in a while and talk about like one not shitty white woman, you know, just to like (laughs) give us some inspiration every once in a while, (laughs) but you know, something that she, her, experience, I think in some ways mirrors what you just shared. Like that list is disproportionately queer white women. And Uh I just, I, I, the obvious answer seems kind of like what you just shared that your queerness and and coming out and disinvesting from heterosexism and the patriarchy in certain ways, like opens you it's, there's no guarantee that you'll be a less shitty white person, but like perhaps (laughs) opens you up to rethinking what everyone takes for granted as common sense and the norm. So is it, is it that simple or is there something else going on that allows queer white women to do this? And I think the second part of that question being like, is there any hope for those (laughs) women? women. How do we, how do we break out of it without having that disconnect? Put the mimosa down, walk away (laughs) from the brioche. (laughs) 
that's so funny. Uh, yeah, your mimosas will not save you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, sadly, I mean, I wish they would. Sadly, they will not. Um, yeah. So the question first about about queerness, you know, um, yeah, and I, I use that term really uh, intentionally, queerness, because I because I want to make a distinction between. Um, gayness, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there was a fight. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but there was a fight actually over, you know, the whole, the whole acronym that we use LGBTQ IA plus, 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 there was an actual political fight in which lesbians said, God damn it. We will be the first initial because we have been so erased um, by gay men mm-hmm. in this movement. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's just in case you wanted to mm-hmm. know, that's why the L comes first. Right. And, and there is a way in which, for those of us who were raised in the kind of heteronormative, um, you know, patriarchy, seeing queerness was a way out of that. And, and I think that it's different for a lot of gay men, not all of them, but they see it differently and they didn't necessarily see it as a way out of anything. It was just sort of who they were. And I think that, that one of the wonderful things that we've learned from our trans siblings is that queerness is this much broader kind of umbrella of mm. gender fluidity, gender difference, if you want to call it, about desire that doesn't go easily into one of these buckets, mm. you know? And so, I mean, I think that it's really queerness, I mean, and and there's, in academia, there's this whole sometimes very difficult to read and understand literature about queer theory. But one of the things I, I appreciate and glean from that from that literature is that we can queer lots of things. We can, we can queer our relationship to the rest of the world. And so that's really mm-hmm. my answer to what, what about all the cishet straight people? Because you, you can learn from queer people, just as I, as a white woman, can learn from Black, Indigenous, and other people mm-hmm. of color it may not be that what they're saying is created for me, but I can learn, you know, from, from their experiences and what they're teaching me. And I, and that's kind of my hope for this book is that as a queer person, that the, the straight women, you know, particularly the cishet straight white women will, will see some possibility in, mm-hmm. in queerness for their own lives. I mean, mm-hmm. going back to that, that photo in the New York Times I was mentioning earlier, I mean, I feel bad for that woman, you know, who's there with the toddler doing potty training, who also has a job and her husband is in the <laughs> fucking next room ignoring all of that, you know? And I, and I think for her, it's like heartbreaking. Like you have settled for so little. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, like what's the prize you're getting mm-hmm. for settling for this? Does he make that much money? And are you that dependent on his income? Is there a way that you could rethink things so that he is not someone you're dependent upon, either economically or uh, emotionally? Hmm. You know, like, hmm. if you want to fuck him, fine. But like, <laughs> do you have do to you, do all this? But do you even really want to fuck him? Like, maybe not. <laughs> I don't well, know. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's actually the other question that I call at the end of the book is like, who are you guys marrying? I mean, you guys being white women, like who are the people that you think are marriageable partners? I mean, one of the examples I talk about, which still just, just fucking floors me is the, that woman in Brooklyn who, who in the middle of this uh, investigation into a cop who choked to death, Eric Garner on a New York city street, 
she sees that cop and says, oh, be still my heart. Mm. Let's get married. Mm. You know, it's like, that's marriage material. You want to, you want to create a family with that asshole? Are you fucking kidding me? Mm. Like, come on, like raise your standards, white ladies. Yeah. But I think there's this sense, like if you start to pull on one thread, then all the whole thing kind of falls apart because once you start to queer ideas about like sexual desire or gender and when, and this is why I think so many of the book bands are targeting queer authors of color mm-hmm. and stories yeah. about queer kids of color because mm-hmm. it's like you start to tease apart one binary you start to question everything else and like suddenly mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. now we're looking into religion and we're thinking about capitalism and we're thinking about this and that and I, yeah. I so there's a sense of I, you can see when people pull on something because it benefits them, them, and then they immediately want to stop the pulling on anything else because yeah. that's gonna, that's the rug is under them at that. And point, I think you know? that's what we talked about. Like the underlying the niceness of white women is fear. It's not yeah, like absolutely. true absolutely. like satisfaction absolutely. with their lives or <laughs> legitimate happiness. And this is one of the quotes that both Katie and I, when I said that I, <laughs> that I love this quote and I started saying it, she's like, no, 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 no. I wrote down that quote too. <laughs> we were like, That's the one that we put out there too. And I, and I'm, you know, going to like print this and put it somewhere. But what you said was <laughs> what I've come to understand is that there is joy and liberation on the other side mm-hmm. of refusing happiness. And, mm-hmm. and if people could get past that fear of everything falling apart, as they start to pull one string and all that and know that then it rebuilds into this much more joyful and liberating Mm -hmm. lifestyle than this fake niceness, fake happiness. We've Mm -hmm. all been taught that we should go after. I think the academic term you used was load of horseshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, (laughs) Yeah, it really is a load of horseshit that we've been sold, right? That if you just, you know, um, you know, share love and light, then it'll all be okay, you know, and it's just, it's just not. But, but if we can confront these really difficult truths about ourselves and about our place in the world, mm-hmm. there really is a, a, a fuller humanity available to us on the other side of mm-hmm. it. But what we've got to do is to let go of that, you know, investment in white, in that, in that, Investment in whiteness ends up being this academic term. What I mean is that that clinging to whiteness as an identity and as a political project. Mm-hmm. So, so when I give when I often give talks about this, there will inevitably be someone, often a fellow academic, who will raise their hand at the end of my talk and say, "Yes, but." Not all white women. Uh, For example, my grandmother came over as an immigrant and, you know, and they were involved in, you know, communism or whatever. And I'm like, and and good for you. But now here you are, a a grown ass white woman. I mean, you are part of this same system that I'm part of. And unless we learn to divest from all kinds of, uh, you know, distinctions in whiteness Mm -hmm. and just say, oh, Right. I was raised to believe that this was a thing and I, it's not really a thing I want to carry on. I want to find a way to not pass this on. Right. Um, and I want to find a way to, uh, you know, connect with other people in a way that recognizes their humanity and puts me in a place that is not above them in any way. And that's the real, that's at the real core to me of the damage that whiteness does to us as 
nice white ladies to all of us who are raised to believe ourselves white is that it disconnects us from other people. You know, um, there was a, there was a moment, I don't include the story in the book. Um, but there was a moment when I was really young and, um, my parents and I lived in a, an apartment complex in Houston, Texas. And, um, and it was because it was an apartment complex. There were all kinds of different people around and, and they were okay with that. Of course, they were also, you know, white and racist of their era. Um, and there was a moment in which I made friends with a, a black kid in the apartment complex. And years later I learned, I didn't know it at the time, but years later I learned that my mother and father had had like a very serious conversation about like, is this okay? Are we going to allow this? And, and they were okay with it as long as I think the way that my mother put it, as long as it didn't go too far, right. As long as whatever that meant sort of levels of intimacy. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful to my parents that they, they were able to stretch that much, but we have to be able to do more than that. You know, we have to be able to see, um, other people in the world as not any different from us in a um, in a way that we don't recognize their humanity. Of course, we have to recognize difference. But what I'm trying to say is that we have to be able to connect with people in a way that recognizes their full humanity and and ours at the same time. And the thing is, whiteness just gets in the way of those human to human connections. It just does. And I mean, you see that in all kinds of ways. Now, I mean, I think of the you know, we're just maybe coming out of a pandemic. I don't know, but all the the way that the, the sort of people who are upset about vaccinations and masks and all that tend to be overwhelmingly white. It's not everyone, but they tend to be overwhelmingly white. And I and I think that there's a way in which that you know complying with getting a vaccination or wearing a mask becomes part of a political and racial identity. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people, resisting that is clinging to whiteness. I'm white, I'm free, and therefore I shall not be made to have a vaccination or wear a mask or do anything that you tell me to, you know, and that's really deep in the American culture and society. Um, And it's about you know, it's about whiteness. You talk about that towards the end of the book that the, like the stats on life expectancy are going down for white people and white women in particular. And it's like people would rather die than give up their whiteness. Yeah, and that's yeah. just so tragic. And I come from the field of education. And so, of course, all these bills about divisive concepts are incredibly troubling. I'm social studies education specifically. And to hear people say like it's divisive to teach about critical whiteness studies mm-hmm. or critical race theory when in my mind, as a white person, I'm like, that's the only way for yeah. me to be in community with people. That's the only way for me to actually have real connections yeah. is right. through learning about anti-racism, racism, all of that. So to have it framed as like, that's what's going to somehow tear our community apart. I, there's just so many reasons why that's bullshit. Um, the, the other piece that Mandy, you mentioned fear being behind the niceness. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesse, when you lay out the chapter that's about white feminism specifically, we're just going to have to have you back because there's so many things. I want to talk to you about Gwyneth Paltrow. I want to talk to you about like some serious bullshit with Rachel Dole's. Like there's a lot in the book. But um, when you talk about feminism, you lay out these categories. Um, 
vagina feminism, carceral feminism, corporate feminism. Mm-hmm. And I, the vagina feminism, we've got questions for you on all of this, but the corporate feminism, like lean in girl boss bullshit, I was familiar with. And the vagina feminism, I was familiar with like turfs and all of that. But the carceral mm-hmm. feminism, even though I've thought a lot about like abolitionist education mm-hmm. and the school to prison pipeline, I had not really deeply connected Mm-hmm. white feminism to the prison industrial complex, to the military industrial complex, and that the white women's fear, the manufactured threat to white women that underlies all of that. Can you just talk about that yeah. section in particular? Because I think it might be a new way to think about prisons mm-hmm. or a new way to think about yeah. war. Yeah, uh, that's a great um it's a great question. And part of what, uh, I mean, I, I'm so, I'm so sort of sad that academics come up with these terms that are, you know, like carceral feminism. It's like, no one knows what that means. You know, it's such a, it's such an awful clunky term, but basically, you know, I, one, one of the ways that I talk about it in the book, which is, I don't know, maybe it's a little better. Is, uh, I call it Smith and Wesson feminism. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I was growing up, my, my father, my father was actually much more of a feminist than my, my mother was. And mm-hmm. his version of feminism was to hint, was to give me a gun for my 17th birthday. It's like, you're going out in the world and you're a woman, here's a gun, <laughs> you know, good luck to you. Um, and, and part of what happened to me, I'll just tell the personal story first, but part of what happened to me is that I actually had someone who was stalking me Um a couple of years after that. And Hmm. I could hear him outside. I lived in a trailer park at the time Hmm. and I could hear him outside the trailer and he tried to get in and, Hmm. and, and didn't fortunately. And I, I called the local sheriff. It was like half hour before he even came. And, and when he showed up at my door, he was like, well, ma'am, there's not a lot you can do, but you can shoot him. And if you shoot him, be sure you drag him over your doorstep. And that was also, you know, the advice that my father had given me, you know, was that, you know, you, you shoot somebody if they're trying to get you and then you drag them over the doorstep. So you can basically, it's what today we call a castle doctrine or, you know, stand your ground doctrine. But we always had that in Texas as white people. Um, and, and in that moment where this guy is after me and I had a gun, I was just like, you know what? I don't, I really don't want to shoot this guy. I mean, I want him to leave me alone, but I just thought I'm, I'm going to carry this with me forever. Mm. Like I will always know who he was. I'll know the stupid little town he came from. It was parents are like, I just don't want any of that. I want him to just go away and leave me alone. And I realized in that moment that a gun was not really the best tool for doing Mm. that. Right. And so in a lot of ways, I think about white, what academics call carceral feminism. I think of it as that kind of Smith and Wesson feminism. You know, it's like, well, just shoot him or send him to jail or get him arrested, call 911. And it's like, it's not, it's not a real solution. It's a, it's a partial solution that also feeds into our fantasy about what our fears are, uh, about what makes us safe. We think Mm -hmm. that calling 911 is going to make us safe. We think that calling the police is going to make us safe. And it may make us believe that we're safe in the moment, but it doesn't make all of us safe, right? It makes the world a much more dangerous place. So for example, one of the things I talk about um, in that section is about the development of the 911 system, right? And this is, you know, we, we sort of bump up against this when we see one of these, you know, like permit Patty or Central Park Karen calling 911. But if you, if you go back through the history of 911, part of what you learn is that the, the idea for it actually grew out of the, the, 
the social uprisings of the 1960s and white people's concern about black people being in the streets. The idea was we need an easier way to summon state power and handle this, mm-hmm. so right? So, so instead of before 911, you had to know the number of the local precinct and dial all, what is that, seven digits? Um, but 911 is only three digits. You can easily remember it. More people can do it. So 911 becomes this kind of concierge service, right? The, the interesting history behind this, though, is that, um, and I actually have done more digging on this since the book came out, that the history behind it is that most cities and municipalities didn't want to adopt 911 because it was expensive. It's like, oh, that's going to cost us money. Why should we do that? Part of what galvanized a national 911 system was the murder of Kitty Genovese. Mm-hmm. Now, Kitty Genovese was a white woman here in New York City who actually was a dyke. Uh, was, mm-hmm. sorry, I, I'm queer, so I get to call her that. <laughs> she was a lesbian. Um, and, and uh, you know, people didn't talk about that at the time. They, the uh, police reports and the reporters knew it, but they, but they hid that. Mm-hmm part of her story, but she was actually attacked and assaulted very close to her apartment. It was in Kew Gardens, Queens. And the reports at the time were that there were lots of people around who heard her cries and no one called. Um, That turned out to not be true, but it was part of a project by people both in the police and in journalism who wanted more police more police in response to political uprising. And they saw the Kitty Genovese story as a useful narrative for getting more police and specifically for getting 911 implemented, right? And the other thing we know about the Kitty Genovese story is that she was actually attacked and killed by a black man. So here we have that trope again, right? Going back centuries in this country of a white woman as vulnerable, under attack uh, by a black man who is, you know, outrageously dangerous and she's incredibly vulnerable, but they had to hide the story of her being queer in order to sell that narrative, right? Because nobody would have, you know, in 1960, whatever that was, Mm -hmm. nobody would have been sympathetic to her if they'd known that she was a queer bartender who lived with her girlfriend. And it was actually tragically, it was the one year anniversary of her and her girlfriend getting together that Mm -hmm. she was killed on, Mm -hmm. you know, but that never makes the, the mainstream stories about it. So, so part of what I'm saying here is that white women's vulnerability has been used to build this police state, has been used to build the 911 system, to build all of these mechanisms that are so harmful um, to black people and other people of color in this, in this culture. And so I think because our uh, vulnerability, our protection has been put out front as kind of the reason that we need all this shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's time for us who are aware of this and who recognize it to, to stand up and start spreading the word and saying, hey, man, not in our name. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you're going to build that, build that for your fucking self, but leave me out of it. Like, I don't, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be part of your excuse for that. And the other thing that's so insidious about carceral feminism is that it's it's so overlapped with kind of that girl boss feminism that there's a way in which young white women are being sold this, um, you know, this lie that they are going to accomplish feminist goals if they pursue a career in law enforcement, as prosecutors, as judges, right, as Olivia Benson on <laughs> an order SVU. Like those are the feminist heroines we're we're cheering for. And it's like, wait a minute, 
how how is that feminism right the if you if you look the real inspiration for law and order the whole panoply of those of those shows is really Linda Fairstein and and Dick Wolf who's the creator of that show said as much in interviews and you know Linda Fairstein is the woman the white woman who was the prosecutor in the Central Park 5 jogging case right and she built her her career and reputation on the false prosecution of five young teenage boys in Harlem just a few blocks from where I am now and and then then she left being a prosecutor and went on to career as a mystery novelist. And all of her mystery novels are the same narrative. It's a white woman prosecutor against the dark forces of evil in the city. And they're all, it's always a black man or some other black person mm-hmm. that she's writing about in her novel. So she, and she's a millionaire now, a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. And so she's really enriched herself and uh, helped be part of this culture industry, right? Which Dick Wolf is also a big part of um, that sold us this narrative over and over again. And it's like, you know, it's like potato chips. You can't stop. You can't stop eating. It's like, Oh, I'll, I'll take another one of those episodes, you know, but, but it's corrosive, you know I mean? Because it's, it's reinforcing at this really deep subconscious level. I argue this, this mythology that, that white women are in danger in need of protection and, Black and other uh, men of color, and really all people of color, are are this menace in the city and beyond, and we've got to do. And so it doesn't matter how much policing or prison or you know how however much of this carceral infrastructure that we build, because there's so much danger at every corner. And the reality is, if you look at what actually the calls that actually go into nine one one. There's a, a statistic, and I'm going to get the actual number wrong, but it's high. It's like 85 or 87 percent of all the calls that ever get logged at 911 are not about crimes. They're about nuisance mm-hmm. uh, complaints. Someone's loud. The garbage hasn't been picked up. Um, there is a homeless person nearby. You know, and and people have actually charted how those calls track with gentrification. Mm. So 911 is really a tool of whiteness. And I would argue it's really a tool. It's white women who are making those calls predominantly. I haven't I don't I haven't seen the study yet, but I, I that's my I hunch. would say that's a safe bet right. you could take. <laughs> Katie and I were talking about that too, what you were just talking about and, and white women's obsession with true crime. Um, that whole genre, because yep. we both, I mean, yep. early on, we both, yep. I think, listened to the podcast, My Favorite Murder, for a while. Um, uh-huh. And yep. it's a yep. huge, huge thing. Um, yes. I yes. admitted to Katie, I have seen every episode of Law & Order SVU. But I came, <laughs> I mean, I did come to that perspective that you were talking about and how problematic that was just a few years ago, and have been much yeah. more aware of that in my consumption of those sorts of things, but honestly, for years and years and years, watched it with zero of that thought mm-hmm. coming into my brain. And it's just, it's so once you see it, though, it's so obvious. Right. You're like, oh, shit. Right. <laughs> yeah. What do I do well, now? Yeah. I mean, once you, once you see it, you can't unsee yeah. it. And that's really my hope for this book. It's like, oh, I mean, because the stuff that I talk about in the book is really, I mean, apart from my personal story, like a lot of it is stuff that's happened in the news. And, and an early reader of the book said, you know, I had seen all that stuff when it happened, but you really connected some dots mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to do with this book is like, oh, look, if you line these things up, 
look at look at where we are in this picture. Well, and and like I said, once you see it, you can't unsee mm-hmm. it. There's a, a quote actually too, I'm kind of mashing up a few different lines, but this to me just summed up what Mandy and I were trying to do, but why we just felt like your book was like oh, singing to us. Um, you said, as white women, we are everywhere, yet often unspecified. There's a kind of void when it comes to white women, a missing narrative about white women as a collective with a specific history. We need to tell the truth about ourselves and we need transformation. And that is... I mean, I'm a history nerd. Like I said, a former social studies teacher. Mandy and I were super nerds in school. She was cooler than I was. That's okay. No, but no, no, no. The we idea. Bring up things. We'll leave no, no, it there. No. But I, I will say that you know that history, that history. it the, we're invisible. We're like the the right, like right, right, sneaky right. underbelly of everything. I swear to God, right. you could pick any product, anything in the world, mm-hmm. and there would be a connection mm-hmm. to white women being shitty, and that it somehow yes. would connect. Like the your point about 911 or like beauty products and like, you know, Mm -hmm. all of these. Mm -hmm. And I think especially this carceral feminism because Mm -hmm. of um, the efforts to defund the police and to talk about abolition Mm -hmm. to a lot of white liberal women is too far. Mm -hmm. Like I I can get on, I'm, I'm supportive of black lives Mm -hmm. matter, but I, that's too, that's a step too far. (laughs) And when you, when you read this section, it's like, okay, friend, well, the FBI, if you could talk about Mm -hmm. that too, like where the FBI comes from, where 911 comes from, where all, like, let's just break down all the bullshit Mm -hmm. that white Mm -hmm. in the name of white women to the benefit of white women, white women, knowingly, deliberately, consciously leveraging, weaponizing, Mm -hmm. and then slipping out of the scene when history books get written uh, you know like that that part of it i think is what i mean and i talk about this all the time we don't expect stormfront ladies to listen to our podcast that's right, fine right, but right, we right. do like for women whose politics are ostensibly a little bit more on the left or moderate or left mm-hmm. who think they're above this we're not above mm-hmm. it and when you find yourself saying like i can get behind this but that's too far that mm-hmm. is when our whiteness shows. Like mm-hmm. my, mm-hmm. it's not to say that everyone, all people of color agree and that all people of color have radical leftist right, politics. Right, we know right, they right. don't, but yeah. it's just to say like, when you find yourself thinking that probably you just don't know the history because odds are mm-hmm. there's some shit there. So yeah. like the, the FBI one, I think really yeah. struck me because I didn't know any of that history. Like mm-hmm. the concerns about white slavery, what the fuck? Like just so there's so much of history you find yourself reading and you're like it's stranger than fiction you know you I can't know, make this I up. I know it's so it's so funny because the um, like when I I grew up going to Texas public school so there's a lot that I missed. So, sorry. <laughs> I mean at least it's not now. Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So the whole FBI story, right? They. Um, so in the early part of the 20th century, so the early 1900s, there was all this concern about uh, something that call, got called white slavery. And and today we refer to that as trafficking, but white slavery was something that happened just to white women. And the fear was that white women were being either abducted or seduced into becoming sex workers, usually by black men. And so... <laughs> federal government actually set up um, the early version of the FBI. And I actually am going to forget the term that, that is in the book, but there was a, that they, there was a, an early name for the FBI that was really about, these are sheriffs that are 
investigating white slavery. I mean, that was really in the title of the early FBI. And it was um, and that's all they did for like the first few years of of the FBI. And then and then it expanded. I mean, and that's part of what we know, too, about the about the carceral state is like once once there's a little you know, entry point, you know, once, you know, for example, now we're living with fucking ice, mm-hmm. right? Which was created under the Bush administration, mm-hmm. right? That's in my adult lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that's a vast gulag of, you know, secret arrests and secret imprisonment and deportation. And, and I mean, I, think we need to abolish ICE, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to have that conversation uh, when people are like, well, um, you know, it exists, so it must be good. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we just We've got to get to a new way of thinking. You know, I mean, we, we seriously need a vibe shift, you know, mm-hmm. to start thinking about what are the ways that we can undo and repair mm-hmm. the damage that we as white women have contributed to. So one of the other examples I talk about in the book is our, our Confederate monuments. Mm-hmm. Now, most of the, <laughs> right. of the white women that I know are like horrified that Confederate monuments exist. I mean, especially white women on the, on the left, it's like, oh, that's antiquated and horrible. And why do they exist? But I don't know of a move among white women to take them down. And bring them down. And I really believe that's our mess to clean up mm-hmm. because it's white women who have that's created right. those monuments. Not only created the monuments, it's United Daughters of the Confederacy. They still exist. There are tens of thousands of white women in those organizations. I happened into an academic conference one time when they were having a convention at the same time. It's like, oh, look, the UDC is here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they still exist. Um, and part of what they did when they were building those monuments, I mean, most of your listeners, I hope, know that, you know, Confederate monuments didn't happen right after the Civil War. They happened several decades later. And they were part of a propaganda effort by white women to not only build the monuments and they, they raised money for it and had, you know, uh, unveiling ceremonies when the monuments went up. But they were also very dedicated to getting in the K through 12 yep. curriculum, the narrative of the lost cause about the Civil War. And that and that was the bullshit that I learned in Texas public schools was like, oh, that was an unfortunate episode that happened in our history. And it had nothing to do with slavery. Mm-hmm. What bullshit. But that's white women's threadbare lie that's being perpetrated in the schools to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really, I really want uh, the the cishet straight white women who read this book to get that this is our work to do. Mm-hmm. I, I so often hear from white women saying, well, I, ju- I just don't know what to do. There's so much mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. We have done so much harm. But the good news to quote my, uh, to quote my friend and, and inspiration, Mariam Kaba, because there's so much wrong, it means there's so many places to start. <laughs> there's so much we can do. Like find your other white women who agree with you that the monuments can, can come down and start your organization organization. Like find the one in your town, you know? I mean, I think that's the work ahead of us. What find, find in your local area, what is it that white women have done here that's created harm and begin there to start taking those steps of repair and reconnection and reparations if we Mm -hmm. need to. Mm -hmm. The, 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 root word of repair is the same as a, as a root word for reparations. Mm-hmm. And we are in desperate need of repair. And if we don't, if we don't take this message now, there's a much bleaker future coming our way. Mm-hmm. That's going to be terrible for all of us. Yeah. I really love that 
the, as Katie said, the last part of your book where you really do give concrete things that people mm -hmm. can do, because I think that's where we get at a loss when we learn this history is that then we just throw our hands up and we're like, shit, <laughs> like it's such a mess. Yeah, right, now right, what, right, you know, right, um, right. then you, right. And that overwhelm, right. Is, is it leads to paralysis, mm -hmm. you know, and it's also, it's also a real denial of our power. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's seeding our power and we have so much power in this culture, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and we just, I think if we can see what we're doing, um, we can start working to change it. I really believe that. We're also really pro group white therapy. <laughs> you talk about just yeah, like yeah, yeah. the need that yeah. it's, it is a psychosis. Like it's a co yeah, yeah. collective 100%. psychosis we're involved 100%. in. And so thinking about like that level of personal work, which throughout the book, you are so open about really deeply personal things in connection with these sociological historical mm -hmm episodes and trends and patterns. And I, I just think that's such a great model for all of us moving forward to do that, those levels of work and just start, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Start somewhere. Mm -hmm. Start somewhere. Yeah. I had, I've, I've encountered some defensiveness from uh, white women about this book because they're, you know, I, I'm, I make some uh, bold suggestions in that conclusion about what white women can do. And, and I put them in sort of eight categories or eight buckets. Um, and, and some white women that I've talked to have really balked at some of those. Ooh, which and ones? I'm so curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say the, the biggest one is, uh, you know, part of what I say is we, we could eliminate the racial wealth gap in this country if white people would just stop passing on their wealth mm -hmm. to their exactly. children. And, and so, yep. which to me just seems like yep. no obvious, but, yep. um, but that's, that's really a sticking point for a lot of white women who have families and children that they have already made all these plans for, you know, we, we already have written our wills that is, you know, seeding this wealth onto them. So I had, I had one woman the other day ask me, she said, well, if I just, if I can't do that, does that mean I'm not doing the work? You know, and it was this <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, yes and no, though. Yeah, I mean, of course, I think, of course. I think, I think she could. I think she could do a lot of things, you know. And she might, over time, decide that that was a, a no big thing, no big deal thing that she could also do. But, but it's just an interesting kind of, you know, it's like all or nothing thinking. It's mm -hmm. all very black and white. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, oh, I have to do all that, or I'm not doing the work. And it's also like a mm -hmm. kind of. You know, I mean, I think sometimes people read the book and, and fortunately you two haven't, haven't done this, but I think sometimes when people are very invested in whiteness, they read the book and they think, oh, well, you think you're so great. It's absolutely <laughs> not, not the message of the book. And mm -hmm. if you get that message, you've misread it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I'm really, I'm really trying a, one of my favorite things that someone has said about the book is an early reader said, this is a gentle double dare. Mm -hmm. And I, that's kind of how I think of it. It's like, well, here's what I've done, which, you know, is not that much but what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Now it's your turn. Well, and that the question isn't like, yeah, if you don't give every cent you've ever made away, then you aren't down for the cause like that. The What to me is more interesting about that isn't whether like yes or no. It's what is the impulse behind that question? Why yeah. are you even asking that question? Mm -hmm. You know, right, right, um, right, right. when when really it's, it's like, it's right, right, exactly. Like, <laughs> for sure, you're going to mess up. For sure. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's very clear in your book. Like here are things that, you know, I wish I hadn't done or that I think differently about now or that I'm mm -hmm. challenged by. So of course that's mm -hmm. always going to happen. Um, when we were first, our very first guest was Sally Rush Wagner, who wrote a 
like edited a, a book about feminism and suffrage in particular. Mm-hmm. And she said she's give, she gives herself white girl timeouts all the time. Like <laughs> this is just something you need to, to do. But the, that idea of having a critical lens, queering your life, like being able to mm-hmm. think differently about how things could be mm-hmm. having an imagination that it doesn't have to be this way. And that I can be part of making it better, I think is really exciting. Yeah. And we're so grateful that you were able to come on and talk about this. And as Katie said, we could talk forever and ever and have much more (laughs) to say. So anytime that you want to join us again, we would love it. But we're grateful for your time. And we hope that everyone will just pick your book up and start having conversations about it. I'm just grateful to you. So thank you you for this. My God. I'm going to just start passing it out. And I love the freedom to cuss. That's right. That's very liberating. Have Have a a great day. Thank you, Jesse. Hi, Jesse. Bye-bye.